you would, uh, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. <clears throat> we'll look at a few verses there first. Um, this lesson is one that I stole from someone. Um, although I'm not sure that's really stealing. <clears throat> I first heard it in February of 2010, and I remember that well because it's one of those where... You know where you're at, you know where you were sitting, you can picture everything around you when you heard it kind of moment for me. Um, it was a wake-up. Um, and it's still something I need to hear today. So um, if I'm stepping on your toes this morning, that's good. Um, but it's not because I picked you out. <laughs> I'm stepping on my own at the same time. Um, it's about a specific sin, a particular sin. Um, in I'm convinced it's a very dangerous sin, and we'll, we'll talk about the reasons for that danger. Um, but if you look in Matthew uh, chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, I think um, this might play a role in, in, in the account that we see there. You know, there, there are people who are going to stand in judgment, completely convinced that they are saved. And not be. Um, let's read. Let's read Matthew seven twenty one through twenty three. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, I'm convinced that I'm going to heaven because of the promises God has made. But I don't want to be one of these people who are convinced that they're going to heaven. And in that final day of judgment, realize, unfortunately, too late that they're not. So what, what is the distinction? Why can, I, why can I be convinced that I'm going to heaven? And why can they be convinced and there be a distinction? Some will go and some will not. Um, I think the sin that we're going to talk about this morning is not the only reason, but I think it plays a role in that. Um, another aspect of this particular sin, I think, is that conflict in our lives and stress brings this sin out. It brings it to the surface. And yet, when it does, it is no more recognizable to the person who's suffering from it. It's easy for other people to look at me or look at us, look at other people and say, oh yes, I see that sin. But even when problems in our life is bringing this out, we won't, we won't be able to see it. Um, and the sin that I'm talking about is, is the sin of self-centeredness. Um, and it's different than selfishness. This is not selfishness. Um, selfishness is not wanting to give up some things that you have in your possession. You, or maybe even just wanting more than you have in your possession. Um, self-centered people can give things away. 
perhaps because those things aren't important to them. Right? Um, the idea of being self-centered is being self-absorbed. And I'm, I'm, sometimes we throw that term around in this society as a derogatory term or something. But I mean, like, think about literally the, the, the term self-absorbed. I'm consumed in my own mind, in my own life, with myself. It doesn't mean that I'm even a mean person or morally a bad person. It just means that I am the most important thing for me. I am the center of my world. Um, I know it's tempting sometimes when, when we are listening to sermons or going through studies like this to think, man, I wish this particular person was here to hear this right now. Boy, I've got some people in mind, when this recording is posted, I'm going to send them this link immediately because they need to hear this. Um, I'm going to ask you not to do that today. I'm going to ask you, as we go through this each time, in, in, in we're looking at scripture, we're looking at examples. Ask yourself, is that me? Not, is that my sister, is that my mom? I see my, you know, family in this. No. Say, is this me? Could I, could I be guilty of this thing? Because, like I said, this is not impossible, but very difficult to self-diagnose if, if we are self-centered because we're already serving ourselves if we're in that mode and we're not going to see the wrong so I'm going to challenge you to, to ask is it I And I mean we even read it this morning I, if you want to also in Matthew turn over to chapter 26 we'll see another account of what we read this morning where the disciples who were with Jesus asked that question is it I um, I, I find this kind of fascinating Matthew 26 in verse uh, 21. I had never thought about this passage this way, but, but starting here in, in verse 21, and as they were eating, he said, this is Jesus, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? Um, their primary concern was were they going to be the betrayer? Not that Jesus was going to be betrayed. But that I might be the betrayer. That's my concern. Um, and I think we have more evidence to point out that all of them were guilty of being self-centered at this time. If you look at Luke's account, turn over to Luke 22. Um, look in verse 24. This is, this is at the same event. Um, this is on the same night. In, in verse 24, Luke tells us, A dispute arose, also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. When you put it in common terms, they were arguing. Maybe they weren't, maybe they weren't arguing for self. Maybe they were arguing for others. 
but what they were arguing about or what they were disputing about was greatness amongst themselves, not anyone else. So in, in pointing out this example, what I'm, what I'm trying to help us understand is if on the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night he instituted the Lord's Supper, that he had all of these disciples with him, if they can fall prey to self-centeredness in that setting, in that situation, we can't. We can fall prey to self-centeredness. I'm convinced they were all guilty of it at that point. And it was a terrible time to be guilty of self-centeredness when Jesus needed his friends the most, right? But that's my point, is if in that situation they can fall prey, we can too. So we need to look earnestly uh, at ourselves as we go through this. Uh, Some of you might be wondering... You know, why spend so much time on such a small thing as self-centeredness? You know, why, why not, you know, focus on, you know, lying or stealing or adultery or fornication, things that are so rampant. Um, you know, we can we can talk about this and argue about this later, but I'm convinced that most of the time, people who are involved in some kind of sinful activity, they know what they're doing. Sometimes people don't know that, you know, a certain relationship they're in is wrong and they need to be told. But many times when people go out and overtly engage in a sin, they know what they're doing. They're, they're choosing to do something that's wrong, most of the time. Um, self-centeredness, I, I don't know that a person always would ever go out and say, yeah, I know I'm living in a self-centered way. Because it's very deceitful, it's very deceptive. Um, we convince ourselves that we are okay in what we're doing, and it feels comfortable to us to live for ourselves. And so, to diagnose this, and to have some, or to have someone tell you, you know, you're living in a self-centered way, right? Well, no, of course I'm not, because I feel good about myself. It's a very deceptive and deceitful sin. Um, that's the, so we're going to talk about three reasons why I think this sin is dangerous, and that's really the first one, is its deceptive nature. Think back again to Matthew 7. In the context, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Right? Um, Jesus has had this, this oration about what it really means to be what the kingdom is like, what the kingdom is about, what serving God is about. And at the end of this sermon, he says, you know, there are going to be people who, who, in judgment, talk about prophecy and casting out demons who are going to be cast out themselves. So what did he talk about in the sermon, though? Um, if somebody slaps you, turn, turn your face, let them slap the other cheek. If someone would take your tunic, give up your cloak of your own free will. Don't make them ask for it. Give it to them. If someone will force you to go a mile, go, the, go, go two miles with them. Not because they asked, but because you have decided of your own free will. How can a self-centered person do those things? A self-centered person cannot do those things. A self-centered person cannot turn the other cheek. It's impossible. 
you hurt me, I'm not going to let you hurt me again. Um, you have taken advantage of me by taking my tunic. I'm not going to give up my cloak. Then you would have a tunic and a cloak, and I would have nothing. Who's it about? It's about me. Um, I have, I have carried your burden one mile. That's enough. You can share in this load and carry it the second mile. I don't need to carry your load two miles. Do you see how a self-centered person would react to that? They would hear the things Jesus is saying and say, "There's no way. You 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 would you would be walked on. People would take advantage of you every day of your life." What qualities did Jesus teach in the Sermon on the Mount? If you think back to the Beatitudes, poor in spirit, meek, merciful, peacemakers, pure in heart. Can you imagine a self-centered person being a peacemaker? I mean, between other people. Two people are at war with each other. They're in conflict. And you're going to come and you're going to step in and you're going to make peace between these two. And a self-centered person hears, well, this person wronged this other person. Well, yeah, you should take revenge. Of course, you were hurt. You can't let that person hurt you like that. You've got to stand up for yourself. Right? The self-centered person is going to project self-centeredness on the rest of the people they meet. If I'm self-centered, you should be self-centered. Your life should be about you because my life is about me. How can you be a peacemaker? You can't be a peacemaker. How can you have mercy? Because mercy costs me something. It costs me to have mercy on you. So really what Jesus was warning them was not that their acts of prophecy and their acts of of casting out demons and all these mighty works. It's not those acts that were bad acts. It's really that they they wanted to go do these things and have nothing to do with the character Jesus preached in the Sermon on the Mount. They didn't want to take that character on for themselves. Everything Jesus taught in that Sermon on the Mount is the opposite of someone who is self-centered. I think, I think one thing we see in Matthew 7 is it is very dangerous for us. If we think in our minds that we have a relationship with God and at the same time we can be self-centered like this. And when I, 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 when I say dangerous, I don't just mean, oh, we're in danger of becoming a bad person. I mean eternally dangerous. It is dangerous for us to live in a self-centered way and have a self-centered mindset and think we have a relationship with God because that's what happened in Matthew 7 in this little, not really a parable but this account Jesus tells about the judgment if he said that's going to happen in the judgment that's going to happen in the judgment I don't want to be one of those people so again, don't think about others Ask yourself, is, is that you? No one knows except you and God. I mean, there are ways to be overtly self-centered, but when, it, when you come down to it, you and God are the only ones who know. So you and God are the only ones who are going to have to figure this out. 
So ask yourself, is it, is it you? Is it I? Is that me? Uh, the second reason that I think this sin is so serious is because it's an affront to God. I mean, in a sense, all sin is it's an affront to God. It's a, you know, it's like a slap in the face. But particularly this sin, because um, for Christians we wear the name of His Son. Um, look in uh, Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-nine. And what God was trying to accomplish through His Son. What He's trying to accomplish in the church and who Christians should be. Romans 8, verse 29. Those whom He, God, foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's design isn't to save Richard and let Richard stay Richard. God's design is that Richard would be conformed to the image of Jesus. He would start to look like Jesus more and more and more. Like brothers look like brothers. Not identical. Right? But you can tell. Are you sisters? Are you brothers? Right? People ask you those questions. People should say, man, are you a Christian? There's something about you that looks very Christian. <laughs> right? I mean, that's what he's saying. We should be conformed to that. Now, what is that image? Okay, what is that image? And that's where Philippians 2 comes in. That's why I asked Josh to read Philippians 2. All right, let's think about this. Turn to Philippians 2. I'm going to start um, in verse 5 and focus on the character of Jesus first here. Have this mind among yourselves, or in your in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That's... That's the image we're supposed to be being changed into right there. Is that for the good of other people, we would die on a cross. There's nothing mentioned here about Jesus picking out some people who were good and some people who were bad. Right? He died. That's the attitude. That's the image. He says, have this mind, right? It's the same thing we just read. Have this mind in yourselves or among yourselves. Now let's go back and look in verses 3 and 4 and see why is he talking, why is he giving this example of Jesus? Verse 3 of Philippians 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, the first time, before I had heard this lesson for the first time, I had never thought about this, but these verses are in the form of a command. This isn't a suggestion. This isn't, it doesn't say, 
it would be really nice if you did this. These are commands. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. I can tell you, I fail in that all the time. Let each of you, again, this is a command, every one of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. That's a command. And I fail in that all the time. So when I say that having a, being self-centered or having this self-centered mindset is an affront to God, think about what we're saying to Him. Yes, I want to wear the name of your Son, and I want the blessings that come with that, but I'm not going to live like Him. I'm not even going to think like Him. I'm, I'm going to live for me. And then we expect to get into the judgment and have something different than Matthew 7 happen? It's, it's, it's an insult to him to say among this world, yes, I'm a Christian, and refuse to take on the image of his own son that he sacrificed for us. It's an insult. Okay. The third reason that this sin is so serious is because it is destructive in nature. Obviously, it destroys our relationship with God because we're not living for Him, we're living for ourselves. But it also destroys our relationship with other Christians. And we see an example of that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to turn over. Um, again, this is just one example. I mean, there are many, many, many different things. First um, Corinthians 6... Uh, starting in verse 5. I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that for unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? This is one example, right? I mean, it's a specific example, but what was happening in Corinth was... You know, Robin wronged me. And I mean by all accounts, law, amongst ourselves, whatever. According to Paul, right? He wronged me. And because I can't get satisfaction, I'm going to take him to court. Paul is chiding me in that scenario. Richard, that's embarrassing for you to take your brother to court before unbelievers. You should rather be wrong. You should rather be defrauded. You should rather let Robin do wrong to you than do something as embarrassing as that. But because I'm self-centered and I've got to save my face and I've got to get something back for what I lost, I'm going to take him to court and I'm going to embarrass the church. I'm going to embarrass the brethren. I'm going to let unbelievers decide a matter between believers who, Paul later says, will judge the world and will judge angels. Self-centeredness destroys our relationships among each other. It may even prevent us from even establishing a relationship with one another. Because I'm not thinking about you. I'm thinking about me. And what can you add to me? What can you do for me? If that's the way I think, right? then when I deem you're not, ad you're not adding anything to me now, 
well, then that relationship is over. I don't need this relationship anymore. Because you're not adding anything to me. Now I'm going to talk about something I have no knowledge of. Two other relationships that self-centeredness will destroy. And I'm really just going to parrot the things I heard in this, this previous lesson. Because I, I see wisdom in them. This is particularly destructive to marriages. To people who must be one. Neither one can be self-centered. Um, in Ephesians 5, beginning in uh, verse 21... We see, beginning in verse 22, there's this very well-known passage about the relationship between wives and husbands and how that's mimicked in the relationship between Christ and the church. That's the example that we have. But if you go back previously to verse 21, he's talking to Christians in general. And he says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In general, we should be submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he adds on top of that the submission of the wife to the husband. And on top of that, the love of the husband for the wife. And how that should be mimicked. Or that should be similar to the way Christ gave himself up for the church. The love that he had for her. How can self-centered people do that? If I wake up in the morning and I think, well, what is my wife going to do for me? How is she going to make my day better today than it was yesterday? How is that loving her? Or if, if, if wives wake up in the morning and say, well, he better do this and that or the other for me. Or heads are going to roll. Right? If... If husband and wife, or even just one of the two, is guilty of this, there are going to be serious, serious issues in that marriage. And I'm not speaking from my experience. I'm parroting what I heard from an elder who has counseled many, many, many a couple. His statement was, invariably, invariably, if he is working with a Christian couple that are having problems one or both of them is just purely self-centered not an evil person not a morally bad person but they're self-centered what is this marriage doing for me what am I getting out of this marriage am I getting what I want out of this marriage this isn't what I dreamed marriage would be about the I, 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 me, me, me is a a good way to self-diagnose There's another relationship that this is destructive to, and that is the parent-child relationship. Again, something about which I have no experience, but I'm going to parrot what I heard. It's easy to do when they're young. They have to have your undivided attention. For you to sacrifice your time and yourself when they're young, you just have to. Children won't survive on their own. They need to be fed, they need to be 
clothed, they need to be clean, they need to be disciplined, they need to be trained. It, it's just natural, right? It, it, it happens. But when they get older, and they get a mind of their own, and they're adults, and they're out of the house, it's harder to be selfless or them others centered. Right? Well, I did my job. They're 18. They're on their own. No more money from me. No more help from me. No more counsel from me. Whatever. Their decisions are their decisions. They're on their own. Um, your children are going to need your time when you are exhausted and when you've had a long day and when they've made bad decisions and they need your advice and when they've made decisions that you advise them against already it's not the time to say I told you so and well, you're not in my house anymore. So, good luck. That's being self-centered. Even when the ch your children are grown, they need you to not be self-centered. Um, according to Psalm 127, children are a blessing from God. That's inspired by God himself. You can't argue with it. Doesn't matter if they cause you heartache or grief or pain or if they're good children or bad children, you can't argue with Scripture. Scripture says they are a blessing from God. So you have to deal with that fact. And if they're a blessing from God, how can we abuse this blessing by being so wrapped up in ourselves that we don't train them or teach them or sacrifice ourselves for them? If we are self-centered, we will not be the examples or the mentors or the Christians we need to be for children. They need to see an example of someone who is Christ-centered. Or there's no, I won't say there's no hope. There's much less hope <laughs> for them to learn how to be Christ-centered on their own. So, how do we diagnose this in ourselves? Turn to Matthew 25. That's the last passage we'll look at. It's another picture Jesus gives, um, obviously at a later time. Matthew 25, uh, verse 31. It's this picture of Jesus returning in glory with the angels and he's sitting on his throne in judgment. Um, we're not going to read all of this. I think it's a, it's a really familiar passage, but basically there are two groups of people um, in judgment. There are those who are saved and those who are condemned. And they don't ask why, you know, but um, Jesus, well, they want to know why. Jesus tells them, here's why. I was in need. And you didn't see to my need. 
and said, when were you in need? Look in verse 40. The king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And in verse 45, he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. So do you want to self-diagnose? Look around you for the least of your brothers, who you esteem the lowest in your mind. And serve that person. If you can't, this is your problem. Or if you haven't, maybe this is your problem. Whoever you esteem below you, not deserving of anything, go serve that person. If you want to self-diagnose self-centeredness, this is how we do it. Because Jesus gave us this tool. If he said this is what's going to happen in judgment, this is what's going to happen. Which one of these do you want to be? Do you want to say, well, I didn't think that person deserved my help? Well, did you deserve Jesus' help? Well, this person helps me, so I help them. How have you helped Jesus? You didn't help Jesus. You helped him up on a cross. We all, and I'm, I include myself in this, not just because I'm speaking, but I'm sincerely saying this. We all need to self-diagnose this in our lives. Because the society in which we live is absolutely 100% opposed to this idea. And it will trap us, and it will cause us to go down the, the wrong path, guaranteed. We will fall into that trap. We can't be like the rest of the world. The apostles were given a second chance. When Jesus rose from the grave, he presented himself to them, and he didn't say, you were all self-centered, I write you off. Even Thomas, who said, I won't believe, he gave him another chance. So sometimes what we need to do is just think more <clears throat> about the crucifixion to help fix this problem. And if we're going to take on the mind of Christ, what was on his mind at the crucifixion? Do you remember what he said <clears throat> when they were nailing him to the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. While he was being nailed to the cross, he was more concerned about the people who were doing the nailing and what it meant to them spiritually rather than what it meant to him physically. That's the mind we need to take on ourselves. What are we doing to those around us spiritually to help them rather than taking into account what they're doing to us physically to harm us so that we don't fall into this trap of self-centeredness. Okay. Thanks for your attention. Thanks for your patience. I went over again. Um,
Robin is going to lead us. Yeah. Yeah. Closing song. <laughs>